The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. First, let us pray. God of grace and generosity, dwell with us now as our word is read and proclaimed, and help us hear and understand what it means for our life and for the life of the world. Amen. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collector booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. As he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are all well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's no pelican in that story. You didn't miss it. It's not there. There's actually not a single pelican anywhere in Scripture, which might beg the question, why are we talking about pelicans? It's not in the Bible. That's true. But the pelican has been one of the most dominant images for Jesus Christ throughout history. No lesser a theologian than Thomas Aquinas penned a hymn that includes the lines, O loving pelican, O Jesu Lord. No lesser writers than Dante and Shakespeare have used the phrase and image, O Jesus, our pelican. It's all over Christian art, and it graces the windows of sanctuaries all throughout the world, including our own. A pelican is embedded in the image of one of the windows in the sower's chapel. It's tucked into the top corner of the prodigal son window. For hundreds of years, the pelican has been one of the most ubiquitous images for Christ, even though it seems a bit unusual to us today. It started in the Middle Ages, Medieval Christians, they had these books called bestiaries that listed all kinds of animals in their spiritual meanings. Bestiaries often also included psalms and prayers. They were carried around for personal contemplation. All of the wild creatures of the earth, the thinking went, had something to teach those who were willing to pay faithful and careful attention. The most pure an animal, the most pure and loving animal listed in these bestiaries every time, in every volume, was always the pelican. They showed mother pelicans piercing their own side to feed their young, giving away their own lives, so to speak. That is the narrative that is included in every bestiary we have available to us to learn from. But the thing is, pelicans don't actually do that. There is no consensus about where this idea came from. 
there's just universal conclusion that it's wrong. Wherever the idea came from, medieval Christians believed it. They believed that pelicans sacrificed themselves in order to feed their children. And because of this belief, some of these bestiaries, they took it even a step further and included a story in which the pelican lovingly raises her children. But when her children are grown, they rebel and they lash out against her. The mother pelican then strikes back and ends up killing the children. But three days later, she pierces herself in the side yet again, But this time she lays over her perished children, shedding her blood over them until they are restored to life. Just like Jesus, right? Kind of? Just like Jesus, the pelican. I promise you I'm not making this up. It sounds like it, I know, so much so that it's tempting to just shake our heads and dismiss it and give great thanks that we are much smarter and much more aware and evolved than our ancestors. But that would reek of arrogance. And the truth is, I suspect there will be more than a few things that centuries from now, Christians will look back at us with that same sort of wonder and bewilderment. But the fascinating thing about all of this, really, to me, is that while we don't know what to make of the story when it's about birds, we tend to accept it when it's about God, don't we? God, like a mother pelican, loves us. But humanity, like the baby pelicans, rebels. And there is death and destruction and violence and pain. And it takes an enormous sacrifice to save us. The pelican sacrifices her own life. And God sacrifices God's own son. God's very own life. The story about pelicans. Well, we cast that aside because we know it is ridiculous. But what about that same story when it's about God? Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it faithful? God loves us. We mess up. God grieves our sinfulness, and in order to make things right again, someone has to pay the price. We cannot possibly pay enough on our own, so God sacrifices Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, just like a pelican. Because there has to be some sort of serious intervention. The scales have to be rebalanced, and there is only one way for that to happen. That is the story. That is the theology that many Christians live by. Theologians over the years, they have developed a vast range of atonement theologies, all of them oriented around the idea that Jesus dies on the cross to save us from our sin. 
Now, it's not the only story that Christians hold on to about how we're reconciled to God and one another, but it is the predominant one, especially in the West. It's certainly the understanding that I grew up with, and I imagine the same is true for many of you, if not most or all of you. The idea that we have become so bad that something terribly bad has to happen to Jesus in order for anything good to ever emerge again. I have to tell you, as a kid, I wondered about this. It caused me to ask significant questions. Am I really that bad? Am I so bad that someone else has to die? How does that help? To be honest, no one ever had a good answer for me. And I'm not sure that I would have a satisfactory answer for me now. Why does Jesus have to die for my mistakes? Why does the pelican have to sacrifice herself? Why does someone always have to pay? And does that even work? One of my friends, she maintains that the hardest thing about reading the Bible is to actually read it. We tend to assume that we know what it says already, so we don't read it to find out what happens next. We already know. So sometimes we look right past things that should seem strange, and other times we add things just because, well, it seems like they should be there. In today's passage, for example, in all of its surrounding verses, Jesus walks around offering forgiveness and healing and dinner invitations to just about everyone he meets. No one, not once, does anyone ask for forgiveness. And no one, not once, admits to any wrongdoing. And some of them had done legitimately bad things. More than a few tax collectors conspired with the empire. They often actively harmed people in order to amass their own personal wealth along the way. But Jesus meets one, and his only response is to schedule a dinner party. Bread is broken, wine is poured, and not a single lecture takes place. No accounting or reckoning. He doesn't seek justice, not punitive or restorative or otherwise. He just eats dinner as if it is any other meal on any other night. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's only one Bible verse that Jesus quotes twice. It's from the book of Hosea, and it's what Jesus says to the Pharisees at the end of our reading today. He says to them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says this to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, they have a bad reputation, but truth be told, most of them were good citizens. 
They knew that really and truly it wasn't particularly okay to be a tax collector and it wasn't particularly okay to hang out with them and act as if everything was fine to pretend that what they did during the day didn't matter when they came home at night. The Pharisees figured there ought to be some sense of accountability. Someone ought to pay for the wrong that had been done. That's what's fair, and that is what keeps the world moving and working. You can't blame them. The idea of sacrifice, of tit-for-tat, is, is and was not new. In prehistoric times, even, people offered the gods their first crop or their best animal because they believed the gods required it. Sacrifices were made so that the gods would not be angry and bring about earthquake or famine or flood, or so that the gods would stay happy and make fields to grow and the land to flourish. As a result, sacrifice made people feel safe and secure. The world has always been full of challenge and threat, so people negotiated with the gods to make it seem a little less scary, to suggest that some semblance of control was possible, to make it seem like life really could be fair if we just managed to play our cards right. That idea, in some form or another, has kept humanity going for a long time now. So it is little surprise that the idea of sacrifice finds itself at the center of so much of our theology. But Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Atonement theology says God sacrificed Jesus in order to make things right again between God and humanity. But if Jesus is what God looks like walking around, it doesn't seem like anyone needs to die in order for any other life to flourish, in order for anyone to find favor with God. In today's text and all throughout the gospel, when confronted with the worst of us, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, consistently says, you are forgiven. You are forgiven, and while you're at it, scoot over. Make some more room at the table, won't you? Share the bread and, for heaven's sake, pass the wine. But if I am being honest with you, I am instinctively a Pharisee. I am an oldest child. Rules and regulations and boundaries, I am actually pretty good with all of that. They either tell me exactly what it is I have to work with, or when appropriate, they allow me to be very intentional about how and when I step outside the line. But Jesus doesn't seem nearly as concerned about any sort of structure or system. He really just seems concerned with making sure everyone has something to eat. A 
Another friend of mine, she went away on a spiritual retreat for about a week. When she came back, she wrote to a few of us and she said, it turns out that the God I say I believe in and the God I actually believe in, they aren't the same. I mean, I profess faith in a God who is infinitely generous and merciful and loving and kind and gentle. I say I believe in that, but I really just believe in that for other people. When I drop my guard and I imagine myself in God's presence, the God I see is rigid and demanding and strict and holds me to the same sort of high expectations I hold myself. She says, it turns out the God I believe in for other people and the God I believe in for myself are not the same at all. My friend is just the most recent one to say it. You'd be surprised how often I hear that exact same idea. Or maybe you wouldn't be surprised at all. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Is it possible? Is it just possible that we've gotten it wrong? The pelican and God and the way that we believe that the world is actually quite strict and the idea that someone ultimately has to pay the price. Is it possible? Is it just possible there is another way of understanding God and the world and the way that we all end up reconciled with one another again? Maybe the cross wasn't God's demand but rather a terrible consequence of human violence. And what if God didn't require Jesus to die in order to set things right? What if it's just that Jesus came and loved fully and truly and powerfully and mercifully with absolutely everything he had in him? Because that sort of love that refuses to hold anything back it would make anyone, even the Son of God, vulnerable. And God's love has always been willing to take each and every risk, wanting to be with us in everything we could ever experience, even death. Maybe what happens on the cross isn't cosmic sacrifice, but divine solidarity. Maybe it isn't judgment and demand that puts Jesus on the cross, but mercy so wide that it ignores every rule and tramples every regulation. Mercy so unending, it embraces everything that we are, even the worst. Because if Scripture is any indication, and we profess that it is deeply reliable, in Scripture, Jesus sure seems to think that if you drink deeply enough of the well of mercy, you are going to find living water and eternal life. Really and truly, I believe this. It is not so much God's sacrifice that saves us, so much as it is God's mercy. Do you know how pelicans 
actually feed their young. They soar over waves in beautiful, stunning lines. They are gorgeous in flight. And they dip down into the water, and when they come up, they have fish gathered in their enormous beaks. Pelicans have the largest beaks of any bird, and they also have neck pouches that hold tremendous amounts. So the pelicans, they go back to their nests, and baby pelicans, they stick their entire head in their parent's neck. Now I know this sounds really just as strange as the earlier story. It's just that this one has the luxury of actually being true. The parents, when they feed their young, they don't seem to mind. It is not a sacrifice for the pelican to feed their babies this way. You see, it doesn't hurt them at all. That is exactly the way they were made. That is how they were designed and created. To nurture in this way is the very nature of their existence. Mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus, our pelican. What if we're like that too? What if we too have a tremendous capacity for mercy And what if that is actually the way that God always intended the world to work? What if there really is mercy that is far wider and deeper and more powerful than we have ever tapped into? What if that kind of mercy is what we're made for? Not to pierce our own side and give until there is nothing left. And certainly not to expect that of anyone else, but rather to receive God's mercy and extend God's mercy as far as any eye can see, as far as any ear can hear, as far as any bird can soar. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.